Giuseppe Conte, the Italian prime minister, has survived the motion of no confidence. And I think he can lay a title to one of the ultimate political survivors of Italian politics. Three weeks later. Yeah, we have f***ed up on that one, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked about Italy so much in the last few weeks. We've stayed off it for a few weeks, but, but now it's back. Do you think we're ready to make a few more predictions? Absolutely. Well then, it's Friday the 19th of February 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me as always is my co-host Sam. Hey Sam, how is life on the other side of the globe? You know, we're getting there. I think we're all just waiting with bated breath for what Boris is going to tell us on Monday. But um, yeah, how is life for you? Good? I, I get a sense that every time we get one of these announcements, it's always bated breath, isn't it? But what comes out? That's the thing with COVID announcements. Government announcements suddenly all important, isn't it? They are. They are. Everyone's paying so much close attention. Chris Whitty's become a national celebrity. Anyway, I thought before we start again this week, as we have flagged throughout the month of February, it is LGBT plus history month in the United Kingdom. And again, we'll be setting up some some interesting quiz questions about um, LGBT political themes and other political facts. So I thought this week, Sam, I wanted to ask you, what is the most commonly used method to legalize same-sex marriage? Is that through parliament? through referendums or through the judiciary? So I saw this question and I tried to do a bit of research. So I hope we've come to the same answer. And I found out that the most commonly used method to legalise same-sex marriage was through using parliaments and acts of parliaments closely followed by the courts. And actually referendums is not very frequently used at all. In fact, I only found one case where same-sex marriage was legalised through a referendum first. So I thought that was really interesting because actually I thought that the answer was going to be courts. So when I found out it was through Acts of Parliament, it took me by surprise a little bit. Interesting. And what do you think is the most effective way in terms of trying to create a long-lasting impact, potentially? Why do you think Parliament was used most often? I think Parliament was used most often because it's probably the easiest to initiate because the courts can't just legalize same-sex marriage that's not really how it works they have to be presented with a case and they have to make a judicial case for why that should be allowed either on constitutional basis or in some cases on a human rights basis Um, whereas parliament it can just be initiated as an act of parliament and in some of these cases the act of parliament reached the courts as it was challenged but it started in Parliament because it's much easier to initiate change, social change in a Parliament. I agree. And I think Parliament as well is the rightful arena for it to, 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 to start with because same-sex marriage is, is a political issue, not, a, not something to be handled by the judicial system. And I think particularly in a country like the US, which went down the judicial route famously in, the, in 2015 when, it, when the Supreme Court uh, basically allowed same-sex marriage. It kind of is a sore point for many conservatives that it went through the judiciary system, whereas I felt there could be more legitimacy, particularly among the, gen- among the general population, if it went through the parliament route. 
which is why I think it's actually the most effective place to do. And I do agree that the ability to start there, the easiest place to start, is definitely a drawing factor. Yeah, and I think parliaments also, in some respects, I would imagine, tend to be more actions with much more longevity because it's although it seems on the surface easier to challenge an active parliament because you can just pass a new one if you disagree with it there's a lot of pressure not to do that because it's quite a significant social milestone in many of these countries i mean it's it's a big moment when same-sex marriage is legalized and when you do it in the courts it can be much easier challenge because you can bring about a new case, you can find new evidence, you can come up with some sort of constitutional reason why this shouldn't be permitted. Whereas to actually pass an act of parliament that explicitly makes same-sex marriage illegal, which is what would be required in parliament, is a really uncomfortable thing for any party to do, uh, to the point where I don't think any party will ever do that. And also parliament, I think, is the most progressive, definitely much more progressive than the judiciary, which can be slow towards change or and much more conservative in a way. And the issue of referendums, you have to get a majority of the people to agree with. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if it goes against you, you are looking 10, 20 years down the road where you can probably bring this issue up again, not potentially in the next five, six, five years, whereas in parliament, there's always elections every four or five years with a new parliament. It could potentially happen in mm-hmm. this new parliament, it could be seen as much more acceptable than having another referendum 20, 30 years down the road. Yeah, and again, it was another, not necessarily surprising, but another eye-opening way of seeing just how recent many of these things are because the first country to legalise same-sex marriage was the Netherlands in 2001, so within the last 20 years. So, And also it's surprising that the country that decided to do it by a referendum was Ireland. And yeah. it successfully passed Ireland, which is traditionally seen as quite a conservative country where the Catholic Church plays a large influence. So yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting that that was the country that um, had to go down the referendum route because it had to change the constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and to change the constitution, you had to initiate, had to go through referendum. And it passed overwhelmingly in conservative Ireland. I should note, Australia actually held um, a postal a postal vote on same-sex marriage um, but it was then parliament that um, passed the necessary changes to the law following the successful passing the successful referendum um, successful postal vote campaign yeah it was a really interesting thing to look into this week indeed but that's not the main thing we'll be talking about this week because as we flagged the introduction we're going to be doing this week a deep dive into Italian politics after Mario Draghi the former president of the European Central Bank, was sworn in as Italy's next prime minister, succeeding Giuseppe Conte. And we'll be talking about all things Italy, ranging from why Drahi emerged as the frontrunner to potentially um, looking at broader themes in Italian politics. But first, before we look at Italy, Sam, what other news have you been following this week? So I've actually been following two sets of elections that happened last weekend that took place in regions that share to at least some extent some similarities so one was Catalonia was was facing a snap election that was originally penciled in for last May and Kosovo was facing a snap election after its short-term ruling coalition was struck down by the constitutional court so both snap elections so in Catalonia first as I said, we've been waiting for this Catalan election since early last year. 
after the president of Catalonia, Quim Torra, had been stripped of his legislating authority by the Spanish Electoral Commission. Um, and he signaled his intentions to dissolve parliament to deal with this issue. And obviously the pandemic happened. So the election was postponed and we actually had it last weekend. So the, the main headlines is that the Socialist Party of Catalonia, which is the sister party of the governing Socialist Party in Spain, topped the polls for the first time in Catalonia's history. But the bigger story of the night was not necessarily who came first, but what happened in the overall results, which is that for the first time ever, pro-independence parties collectively amassed a majority of votes in the elections after last year for the first time amassing a majority of seats. So this is a big shift in the pro-independence movement in Catalonia, it would seem. Um, the three main independence parties, the Republican left, Together for Catalonia and the Popular Unity candidacy, increased their number of seats from 70 to 74 and are again expected to form the government. But we'll wait and see on that front because the Socialist Party believes that they have the right to try and form a government first. And also I found out that on a COVID front, they actually had... Um, a window on election day of an hour where if you were either diagnosed with COVID or had been a close contact, you could go and vote in the polling station in the like COVID hour, which I thought was a nice touch in a COVID election. Um, but, but before I talk briefly about Kosovo, I had a quick question on Catalonia. Do you think that a divided pro-independence vote like we see in this region is a help or a hindrance to the effort of independence? Because it's very different to another region that we're going to be talking in the coming weeks, which is Scotland. Here in the UK, we have the SNP, who exclusively represent the pro-independence vote. Do you think it helps? I think what's more important is the total share the vote that the independence bloc commands versus the block that the federalist block let, shall we call it that wants to remain part of spain i think that's a bigger um, motivating factor because independence such a big cleavage in catalonia has been an issue that's been there for such a long time that politics has more, more or less orientated itself along this cleavage rather than the traditional left right divide that we usually see in between the people's party in spain mm -hmm. versus the socialist party in the on the left and so therefore, I don't think it really matters that it's more divided, that there are three parties rather than one, mm -hmm. because of the fact that they, they, they increase the number of seats and they have worked together successfully in the past. Um, it was only through judicial intervention that, that, that caused the previous government to collapse. So no, I don't think it's a hindrance to the overall um, effort of the Catalonians to seek independence there. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I just thought it was interesting because when I was looking at potential government arrangements, that these three parties, although they agree on the issue of pro-independence, they pretty much disagree on everything else um, because they span from the centre-right all the way to the centre-left. And there have actually been problems in the past with trying to get these parties to work together. So I just wondered whether... I completely agree with you that the independence cleavage is so massive that these other dividers end up not really mattering in the grand scheme of things. But I just thought it was interesting that in terms of applying pressure to the Spanish government, whether it coming from a, a government that agrees on independence, but pretty much nothing else is less effective than it coming from a government which 
they know what their priorities would be in government in Catalonia, as well as wanting to find independence. I think it's the thing, the biggest factor there, therefore, is how important they view independence. If independence among all three parties is the sole main aim, then they can kind of rough right share some of the ideological economic divides. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, though, because of COVID, the economic divides and the health divides as such are very important as well. And they have to deal with that management on a day to day basis more than just focusing solely on independence. So, yes it could be more problematic from that sense, really. Mm -hmm. But I do foresee that if Catalonia does become independent, I could see that coalition falling apart very simply because the thing that united them in the first place has largely gone and they would therefore fall back on more of the economic divides that will ensure that the far left uh, popular unity unity candidacy will not like to go into a coalition with some of the more centre-right elements of the same independence coalition. So potentially, because independence has not been achieved yet, it could work, but that is very much potentially more in doubt than usual because of the nature of COVID requiring an economic response that is needed to respond to the challenges that COVID has created. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Catalan struggle rolls on, and I'm sure it won't be the first time we talk about that region. But very quickly, the other election I was following was Kosovo in the Balkans. Um, because last weekend's Kosovo election saw a landslide victory for former Prime Minister Albin Kurti and his Vetevendosier party, which is the largest electoral victory in Kosovo's history of any party. But what I thought was fun about this is that this election had such a long and wild story attached to it that I thought it was interesting to try and summarise it in a nutshell. So we had an early election in Kosovo in 2019, which produced a very fractured set of results in which Albin Kurti, the aforementioned, emerged to form a coalition government in early 2020. But by the 25th of March of that same year, the government was ousted by no confidence vote brought about over disputes over COVID, which actually was the first government to fall as a result of COVID, which is an interesting thing to look at. And then the centre-right Democratic League and their leader, Abdullah Horti, formed a new coalition, which won approval in the parliament by just one vote. Are you still following? So then in December last year, the Constitutional Court ruled that that government was Ill- illegitimate because one of the voting members, Etim Arifi, had a criminal conviction. And because the majority was only achieved by one vote, the whole government vote was illegitimate because that one vote didn't count. So then here we are with other elections. But now Albin Kurti has achieved this enormous result. It's looking like he might even go into government with an overall majority, but that remains to be seen. Um, And to put a long story short, last weekend saw a very big win in a still quite bitterly contested region. Um, And I just thought it was a really interesting election story that I've been keeping an eye on. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I should note that Margaret Thatcher came into power uh, through the, in the 1979 election after the Callaghan government fell, by fell one vote. in a no-confidence yeah. vote by one vote. And there was actually a really interesting documentary. I know we're going to talk about Kosovo in a minute. But there was an interesting documentary done where actually there was apparently a deal done between the Labour whips and the Conservative deputy uh, whip at that time, uh, Bernard Weatherhall over the 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 fate of the fact that Sir Alfred Broughton was very ill 
and the Labour Whip was looking for a pair. And apparently Bernard Weatherhall offered it as a gentleman's agreement. But the Labour Whip was so impressed that the Conservative Whip would be willing to offer himself as, as part of the gentleman's agreement, knowing that his career would be ruined if he, off, if he did mm-hmm. do such a thing, that he released him from his obligation of yeah. having to be paired. Um, and because of that release of the obligation, the government fell and we saw Margaret Thatcher rise to power. So yes, one vote, the scheme of things can be very crucial, isn't it, Sam? It can, it can, and it certainly was in this case. Um, so what, what have you been following this week? Um, the one thing I will note about Kosovo is that Vojola Osemeni is expect she's currently the acting president of Kosovo, Kosovo, and she's expected because she's in coalition with uh, Kuti, she's expected to be elected by parliament as president of Kosovo, and she will become Kosovo's second president, but more importantly, Kosovo's first female president as well. So this follows a trend in which we're seen in Europe, and we covered it a few times on our podcast that our female political leaders becoming. A, a real increase in the number of female political leaders, either as head of government or as head of state. Mm-hmm. Um, but more, the, the big news this week, which I was looking at, and I'm sure, Sam, you must have been looking at it as well, was that early in the week, the we had the results of Donald Trump's impeachment in the Senate, where he was acquitted 57 to 43. 57 uh, members of the Senate for voting to convict and 43 voting to acquit. Now, the reason why the conviction failed, despite having a majority, is that you needed 67 uh, seats. In other words, a two-thirds majority in order to convict President Trump. Seven Senate Republicans voted with the 50 Democrats. Um, The seven were Richard Burr of uh, North Carolina, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mitt Romney, of Utah, Ben Sass of Nebraska, and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, which I'm going to talk about some of the Republicans in a little bit. But the key votes seem to hinge on what Mitch McConnell did, as we talked about a few weeks ago. He adopted a strategy of voting to acquit former President Donald Trump, but subsequently launched quite a stinging attack on Trump after the vote occurred, saying that the mob had been fed lies by President Trump. And he bases his decision to quit largely on the basis that Trump is not the sitting commander-in-chief and instead was a former president. And therefore, given the legal ambiguity, he yet voted to quit. So what do you think, Sam, of Mitch McConnell's strategy? Why did he decide to adopt this approach, do you think? Um, I think it's probably part of a long-term strategy of his. I mean, I found his speech just, I mean, I'm going to, go out of my objective state here and just say it was just ridiculous but it looked like he picked up the speech that he was going to deliver if he voted to convict because everything he was saying basically was that Trump was guilty and yet he just walked off the floor having voted to acquit Um, but potentially it's part of his long-term strategy in trying to rid Trump from the Republican Party maybe he thought um the base will not enjoy it if I convict Trump at all. There'll be an immediate reaction to this. But if I vote to acquit Trump, saying that the trial was a sham, but yet I go out to the Republican base in saying, well, this is why I think he did this wrong and I think he's not a very good person. It can be part of a long-term argument to the base to try and say, please 
do not nominate this guy again. Um, but other than that, I, I'm just not sure. I just found it so bizarre and just it summed up everything that the Republican Party have been doing for the last four years, which is just adoring Trump for some reason. And even when they find he's doing things that are abhorrent, they will still support him to the bitter end. I agree he's playing a longer term strategy, but I don't think it's as long as you think, because I think he knows he, he has a good chance to win, to become majority leader again in 2022. And that means is that he needs to retain a certain amount of influence in his base to get so-called electable Republicans chosen as candidates rather than some of the more Trumpian Republicans, which could prove a turnoff in places like Pennsylvania. So he had to retain a degree of influence with the base. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think he also knows that he needs the Trump voters to turn up on election day. And the thought that, you know, Trump could have a very effective message, don't vote Republican because I do not want to make Mitch McConnell majority leader. So therefore he had to align himself in some way so that he doesn't become a target on his back among Republican base voters not turning out to vote. So I think he was trying to strike a balance with trying to, on the one hand, retain a degree of influence within the, uh, on, in the party itself, but not also aware that they need to win some of these suburban votes, hence why they, he rebuked him so publicly after the vote. But at the same time, knowing he still needs a president to get the votes of these working class people who might not necessarily vote on in midterm elections to come out to the polls. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, on the theme of the Republican Party, I don't know about you, but to me, getting seven Republicans to vote to convict Trump, I thought it surprised me. It was at the upper end of what I expected. In fact, I was maybe thinking we'd get five. So to get seven, I thought was quite an achievement. Did you think? Yes, I did. And I just read out seven Senate Republicans that voted to convict Donald Trump. Were there any surprises among the seven, in your opinion? Um, not necessarily, because all of them, to me, made sense in terms of their own position. So you had like Pat Toomey and Burr as outgoing retiring senators, so they will not face any electoral consequences for this. You have Lisa Murkowski and Bill Cassidy, who both run in jungle primaries. So this is not a problem to them. Then you have Susan Collins and Ben Sass, who've just been elected. And even then, Susan Collins would be forgiven for this because it's kind of her... USP in Maine. Um, and then you have Mitt Romney, who was always going to vote to convict because he did last time and it, when no other Republicans did. So none of them particularly surprised me. But what just surprised me overall was that the number got as high as 57. To me, I did find Bill Cassidy's vote interesting, though, because I know he was just elected, but he didn't give until the first day of the impeachment hearings, he didn't give any indication that he was going to convict. Donald Trump. And up to this point, he'd been a rather loyal foot soldier of the president as well. So I actually did think Bill Cassidy's vote me, was interesting. Yeah, to me, the most surprising name actually is a name that's not on that list. Because if you'd have presented me with that list, I would have then expected Rob Portman's name to also be on that list. Yes, exactly. And the fact that's my that next his point. name was not on it was actually more surprising than any of the names that were to me. I agree. Um, I think I think you're right on uh, Rob Portman not being there. Um, Bill Cassidy as well, back to him. I think Louisiana's very red. Very, very red. I know he's just been elected to a six-year term, 
But I do wonder what will happen to him at the end. I suspect some of these Trump Republicans might have long memories. And I think that's the thing, you see. One of the notable factors is that Lisa Murkowski is the only Republican that's up for election in 2022. The rest of them, even though Bur- Richard Bursey and Pat Toomey's seat are up for election, they're not going to be there because they're retiring. Mm-hmm. And Lisa Murkowski has had a history of running against the Republicans or Republican-aligned candidates in 2010. She actually had to write in as a Republican because the Republican part, the Republican voters in her state chose Joe Miller and uh, who was backed by Sarah Palin. And in 2016, Joe Miller was on the Libertarian ballot, but Lisa Murkowski proved that she had quite a big crossover appeal and she won the Senate seat quite easily in that case. So I therefore think, do you think that particularly Burr's case and Toomey's case of Kind of like, I wouldn't say they're they're not Trumpian Republicans, but they're quite solid conservative. Are these, do you think, how the caucus actually feels about Donald Trump, but can't really say that because they are political futures that they wish to nurture? I think yes and no. Um, because I think yes, that, the, that this does show that what the Republicans would be willing to do to Trump if there were no electoral consequences for doing so. But at the same time, I think this case was such a unique case in that the guilt was so obvious and they'd all collectively experienced the crime that he was being convicted of, that it was just, it was not a conviction on Trump being Trump. It was a conviction on Trump doing something incredibly dangerous. So I think I'd have been interested to see what these people would have done, say, in the first Trump impeachment, if they didn't have any electoral consequences, because that was a very different case. So that that's that's my only asterisk to saying yes. And finally, if Mitch McConnell voted to convict, would that have been enough to get it past sixty-seven? I really don't know. I don't. My instinct would be to say yes, because I think some people would follow his lead. But I think by then, Mitch McConnell's grasp of the Trumpian element of the Republican Party had weakened so much that even him going across, I feel like, who are your other nine? Who are the other nine who would follow him? Yeah, because I think he only can get at maximum five Mm -hmm. rather than nine. So like you, I struggle to see where he can get 67 from. Anyway, this impeachment trial is now over, thankfully putting a final end to this first Trump term. Bets are we going to be here in a few years' time? We may well, possibly. And I'm sure we'll be keeping an eye on that. But I think this is a good moment to pause and we'll be right back after this. So, welcome back. And last week, after a crisis, we saw many ups, downs, twists and turns. And, you know, us confidently predicting that Giuseppe Conte would survive. Remember that, Sam? Former ECB president Mario Draghi was sworn in as the Italian prime minister, um, achieving overwhelming support in the Italian legislature from, from most of it- Italy's major political parties. And therefore, we thought we'd use this, this next little segment to talk about Italian politics in general. What makes it so fascinating to cover from the outsider, what makes it so frustrating as a citizen to also watch as well. And we'll be talking about um, the party system, the players within the legislature, and themes in general. But my first question, Sam, is a bit of a light-heart trivia question. Can you name the last all the Italian prime ministers that have been in the last 10 years? <laughs> oh, am I right in thinking there's been 
seven if we include the end of Bellasconi. So I'm going to say Bellasconi is one of mine. And then obviously Mario Draghi and Giuseppe Conti. Matteo Renzi. The last Mario, Mario Monti. Um, Paolo Gentiloni. And then the last one has completely slipped me. Is it? No, it's Letter. Letter. Correct. It's seven prime ministers in 10 years, which makes Australia look very tame, doesn't it? I did find a fun fact that since Angela Merkel has been Chancellor of Germany, there have been nine Italian governments. I, I can certainly sympathise her if she'd given up learning who, who, her, who her new counterpart is. But anyway, I think let's, let's talk a bit about the fall of Giuseppe Conte. What went wrong, do you think? Why could he not form a government this time around compared to his previous attempts? So I think what went wrong, which is, I think, where we went wrong in covering it as well, is that he presented a new administration to the two chambers of parliament in Italy and had achieved support in both of them. But the crucial thing was it wasn't a majority. So the arrangement was just not sustainable. And it seemed... There was a plurality in the Senate. Yeah, not a, a plurality ma- in the Senate and a majority in the Chamber of Deputies. Yeah. So... the arrangement was not sustainable because governments need um, majority support in both chambers or at least plurality, but to sustain for a long time, you would need a majority in both chambers. And he didn't have that. For whatever reason, Matteo Renzi was not playing ball anymore. And both of us thought that maybe Matteo Renzi would go back to supporting the Conti government, but he didn't, it seems. Um, and it was just not a sustainable arrangement. And I think what all Italians agreed, whatever party they were in, apart from maybe the exception of the league, they did not want an election right now in the middle of COVID. Um, so the only solution really in the end ended up being that Conti had to be replaced and he had to be replaced by someone who was at least on the surface above party politics because they've tried every single combination of left, right, centre, far right, and they just needed someone who could command the support, at least loosely, of all of the above. You see, I think you're right about the fact that he ran out of options because he's tried left, right, you know, everything. And the only option left was a centre-right, but they were refusing to play ball. But I would like to take you back on something you said about the league, who wanted an election. If they wanted an election, why did they back Mario Draghi alongside Forza Italia? Because they know that if what if their government fell, Conti government, there'd be no choice left but for an early election. So why did they choose to back Mario Draghi if they knew if they didn't offer him support, they could have probably gotten the early election, which could have delivered them power? So this is pure speculation. Um, but I wonder if maybe they view the Mario Draghi period as a bit of a like sustainable period in which your position in the polls or your party support would just be maintained pretty much um and taking over government and having an election in the middle of the pandemic is not ideal so maybe their view is well we can see out the pandemic in this technocratic arrangement then we can go full throttle for an election which we'll probably win or at least be in the strongest position to form a government and then we'll go from there you see i also think the the two key elements of this as well First of all, the Drahi government's unlikely to be a long-term arrangement. And they know that the parties themselves, the centre-right parties know that it's going to be unlikely to be a long-term arrangement. So therefore, are more willing to, like you said, put up with that short-term, mm-hmm. con- short-term period where they're out of power. 
And crucially, the second point is as well, is that the reason why the Conti government struggled towards the end was that it really didn't know how to spend a lot of the COVID money it got from the European Union as kind of compensation for the lack of European solidarity, in the, particularly in the first wave. And have being in government, when you have such a large amount of money to spend, is very powerful in a system where potentially that is, could be used to be much more, where politics is quite more transactional than in some other countries. So that was also a powerful instrument, in my opinion, as well. Yeah, I, I fully agree. So go, going back to Mario Draghi, what do you think this government represents? Do you think it represents a big change in policy output? Or do you think it is very much a technocratic response to COVID and then we'll deal with politics later? Or do you think there is an ideology here? I think it's more of a technocratic get us through this next period, really. Because I think, I wonder whether the parties detected when the Conte government ran into trouble towards the end, how sick and tired Italians are that once again, the usual crisis that has dogged Italian politics is reared its head again. And therefore, a bit of politics has to step backwards. But then again, I note that Drahi himself is realistic about the fact that of his position, because I do know that quite a lot of his cabinet are also political appointees mm-hmm. as well. In fact, there are only nine independents out of the cabinet of 24. Majority of his cabinet is political parties. So he knows that he has to play politics, really, rather than... And he was only there because the political system meant that they probably needed a technocratic government to give them cover and to not draw the flag whilst all the tough decisions are being made right now, where potentially, you know... Italy, if, it, if the COVID cases worsen and they might have to go to another lockdown, that could cause a large political backlash. So yes, I do think it's mainly that the fact that they do not want political heat right now to be placed on political parties for why Drahi emerged. But I have a question more in general. Why Mario Drahi? He kind of emerged out of left field to me, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I didn't see that name coming at all. I just wonder if it was mainly that he is... Well, first and foremost, a technocrat, but he's a technocrat who's operated in the political environment and has held leadership positions because, as we said at the start, he was the president of the European Central Bank, which is nothing to scoff at at all. Um, It's one of the key leadership roles within the European Union. So I think they brought him back because he has financial experience, which is going to be vital. He has leadership experience and he's at least to a certain extent, above politics. And I think it just happened to be that all of those things added up for this individual. And now he's leading what I think, well, initially we should step back and look at this government from a broadly political science perspective, which is that we have a cabinet which includes things from the far right through to the populist centre to the left. It is the weirdest cabinet ever. And it's, it's almost like a bit of an experiment going on as, as to whether a government of this kind can survive. Shall we take bets on how long this government will survive? I think it'll see out 2021. So maybe, maybe we'll be back looking at an Italian election next year. But I think it will see out this year. I, I think you're right. And I should point out that the minister that the league nominated, uh, Juan Carlo Gioletti, has actually personal ties to... Mario Drahi himself, actually. He's also seen as more the moderate wing of that of the League Party. Because 
the reason why the lead party has surged into prominence, they moderated itself. I know hard to believe from Matteo Salvini's rhetoric, but he himself has moderated. And Giancarlo Gioletti has, has, represents a moderation of that. So it's a moderation of a moderation, really. Therefore, I think that's how he managed to get the nod into cabinet. So mm-hmm. it's not quite that wing of the lead party. It's more of the more moderate tendencies that has gotten the cut into the cabinet itself. So stepping back a little bit more broadly and looking at Italian politics, we've had seven prime ministers, as we said, in the last 10 years. Why is Italy in particular so unstable? Well, how long do you have to answer the question? (laughs) Um, I think there are many factors. I think part of it as well is we cannot underestimate is that the electoral system plays a big part here. If you can produce governments that are have majority governments, one-party governments, I doubt you will run into the same electoral instability as Italy has. So I think the electoral system has a big part to play in it. And not helping the more proportional representation system is that it fragments easily into personalities. And because Italian politics is very regionalized, if you are party leader from a certain area, you're more likely to draw enough votes to get yourself and a few friends into parliament itself. So yes, I think the nature of Italian politics being more being PR driven and the fact that it's so regionalized that people are proud of the region that has lent itself to a fragmented parliament and therefore being a fragmented parliament means that you can have varying coalitions here of all ideological shapes as well. Yeah, Um, I mean, on the electoral system point, we've had in Italy four different electoral systems since 1993, the latest of which was actually tested out in the last Italian election in 2018, which is the two-thirds proportional and one-third first-past-the-post. And they thought this would solve all their problems, and we now know that it definitely didn't. In fact, it may have made them worse. One of the really interesting electoral systems that I thought was proposed was by Matteo Renzi back in 2015. They would stick with the proportional aspect, but if any party got 40%, they would automatically get a majority of seats. And if nobody got 40%, the top two parties would go into a runoff to see who would get the the booster to get them to a majority. So at least they would have a majority government. We never got to test that out in an election because it was struck down by the courts. But they've tried and tested so many electoral systems that there's no surprise it's unstable. Because if you can't even pin down how you want to elect these institutions, (laughs) you're going to have struggle keeping them in place. Um, One thing about this new electoral law which I think um, could, in the long term, help with stability, is that they've raised the threshold to 3%, still small, but it's raised. They would now only give small parties a month to collect the signatures they need to be on the ballot paper, which is quite a short time in politics. And this meant that between the 2013 election and the 2018 election, the number of parties running went from 47 to 28 and the number of candidates went to 9,897 to 5,058. So I think they're heading in the right direction. So that is a positive. But still though, 5,000 candidates for, let's be honest, 400 seats in the Chamber of Deputies and 200 seats in the Senate. That's insane still though. I mean, 16 parties in 2018 got more than 100,000 votes. 16. 
Right. I mean, I mean, that, those, that, those are just mind-boggling statistics. I should say, though, and this is really interesting, is that this system of a winner's bonus, let's call it all it is, it is a winner's yeah. bonus, applies in Greece as well. Whereas, but in Greece, it's the winner of the popular vote gets an extra 50 seat regardless. So even if you win the popular vote by 21% to 20% to your opponent, you will get 50 extra seats. And that might have helped Greece having, because it is notable if you look at the trajectory of Greece and Italy, at the start of the decade, both countries were suffering very much from the Eurozone debt crisis and both had technocratic governments at the start of the 2010s. But since then, Italian government, seven prime ministers in 10 years, and Greece has been had two relatively stable governments in Alexis Tsipras in Syriza and Mitsotakis of the New Democrat Party, who is the current prime minister of Greece. So do you think this winner's less evidence that the winner's bonus could potentially work in Italy? Or will the same things happen? Because as we both know, people can leave political parties whenever they like. Yeah, I mean, there is another element to this, which when I was trying to research what, why political scientists thought Italy was so unstable, is that it goes beyond the electoral system. I think that that causes some problems, but there is something more at the heart of this. Um, and a lot of the cited reason was that when Italy was writing its constitution back in 1946, after the Mussolini era, one of the real things that they wanted to avoid was centralization of power, which meant that a lot more than in other countries, Italian prime ministers have to get things through both chambers as confidence issues. So there's much more opportunity for prime ministers to be to be ousted, as happened to Matteo Renzi, just one example. They fell because of a confidence issue in parliament. And and we talked about this a few weeks ago, you know, this idea of a dual mandate between in the chamber, chamber of deputies and the Senate, didn't we, Sam? Yeah, I think just generally, Italian politicians don't trust other Italian politicians and the Italian public don't trust Italian politicians. So they have so many checks on anyone exerting any kind of authority that in the end, nobody gets to exert any authority. But you see, right, I think they do trust somebody and this is key to why when the heat is really on, they look to the president of Italy as well. And the president of Italy for the last, if you look at it over the last decade, has been Giorgio Napolitano, who's been quite influential and kind of a father figure in Italy. And the current one, Sergio Mattarella, is a former judge in the constitutional court. And I do think that they're kind of like more father figures than respected figures among political parties, men that they are able to, when the situation gets too hot and politics has to be taken out, a technocratic government can more easily come in and fill that void for that short period of time. And, or they're more able to cobble together a coalition. And this very broad one we're seeing from the centre-left all the way to the far right. Yeah, it was Matareya who called up Mario Draghi and invited him to form a government. So we saw that happen in the last few weeks as well. But one other factor I think that contributes to this is the party system. And not just specific parties existing but the sort of ideological poles around which these parties tend to form because let's look at general western european democracies you tend to have and and democracies more widely to be honest you tend to have poles around the left and the right a dominant center left party a dominant center right party is pretty typical in italy we seem to have the center left 
the center right and then the outright center. So you have three poles, which I think causes problems here in trying to form governments. More recently in recent years, because the five star movement have emerged almost explicitly as a centrist party. I think it's just made things extra difficult. Do you think that's true? Not only that, but you've got a different dimension as well that it could be unique compared to other parties, which is the more technocratic angle versus a populist angle. And the populist angle has ensured that you've got left-wing populists, you've got right-wing populists, and now you've got even centrist populists rise with the five-star movement. And then on the other hand, you've got technocratic governments. I also would know that in order to be a technocratic government, Prime Minister of Italy, you have to be called Mario, but I think that's a <laughs> totally non not related issue altogether. Um, but I think that that element as well, that difference has also been key to why there have been so many changes of government as well. And particularly the political parties themselves know that, it's a point I made before, that they know that these technocratic governments are tend to only sort out the hard decisions that political parties do not want to take the heat for, but want to still enjoy the reaps of economic growth and the Lagrasse spending, which ironically could have caused a problem in the first place. Yeah, I mean, we, we now are in a situation where the party which holds the most seats in Parliament was only formed 12 years ago, the Five Star Movement, and the party currently polling in first, the League, has never polled higher than, I think, third or fourth in any Italian election previously. And look at the five-star movement now, because they had a real problem with whether to back Mario Draghi or not. Um, and I think the five-star movement is slowly but surely falling apart, in a way, between the purists and the realistic. So the realistic is currently led by uh, the current foreign minister, Luigi Di Mario. And it is notable that in the House, the confidence vote was 535 to 56, and in the Senate was 262 to 40. Now, those are overwhelming majorities. But if you look at this, the, the, in both the Senate and the House, there were a notable number of five-star MPs who didn't vote to confirm Mario Draghi as prime minister, 15 in the Senate and 16 in the Chamber of Deputies. In fact, nearly a third of the, of the senators in the five-star movement didn't back Draghi. That doesn't spell like a political, healthy political party to me, frankly. No, I just wonder if the Five Star Movement will end up being a key case study of what happens when pure populist parties actually get into government. Because one thing, like I remember studying the Five Star Movement in its earlier days, like in the mid-2010s, when they were still kind of on the fringe of Italian politics, and they were recruiting candidates just from people submitting their CVs, just members of the public. It was not an internal, they didn't have any party infrastructure. It was being run as though it was a business rather than a political party. And then these kind of parties that are set up to put pressure on the establishment, when they become the establishment, they feel like they have nowhere to turn. And because they don't operate like a political party, you end up with these situations where so many of their MPs don't support the party line. It's so divided. The voters don't even know what you really stand for. And then you end up just declining in the polls. And I think the last time I checked, the Five Star Movement are polling in fourth, third, behind the League, who are obviously in first, the surging Forza Italia party and the Democrats, I think. 
But you see, the Forza Italia party is not party surgery. That's a worrying thing. It's the Brothers of Italy party that is surging. And that's even more extreme version of the league party as well that potentially we need to be very careful of. I agree with your point that pure populist parties, when they get into government, they kind of have to adopt some of the practices and by and professionalize this service in order to survive in government. And that includes potentially being more realistic about the outcomes mm-hmm. than some of the backbench MPs who are not in government have to be really. So one question we wanted to ask is that you, you see that apart from the Democratic Party and to a certain extent the Five Star Movement, it appears that personality is driving the rise and fall of Italian politics, which is similar to what we discussed for South America, actually, in the last few weeks. Why do you think it's the case that personalities are so strong in Italy? That's a good question. I think it is because, um, like I said, part of it is electoral system. Because you have, even before, two-thirds were seen as a solution to their problems. And we know that PR systems are easier for personality-based politics to form because of the fact you can get a lot more MPs in, really. And to make a splash or to get more votes, you kind of have to be a bit more that bit more vocal, mm-hmm. really. So that's one. I think also, too, is that there's a sense of the drama and, the, and you have to shout louder in order to be heard. And therefore, you have to have a personality to, to yeah. do that as well. I wondered so. if there was something to say about the fact that people feel like there is an opportunity to do well in Italian politics because it fluctuates so often that big strong personalities try and burst onto the scene because the path to prime minister doesn't seem that crazy. I mean, I read that Berlusconi is the only prime minister to serve a full term since 1989. Like in in 30 years, he's the only person to serve. And let's be honest, Berlusconi is quite a colourful character, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. So I wonder if people view it as well, I have a way in here because the the landscape shifts so frequently that I can emerge and become really successful in quite a short period of time. And I think, you know what else as well? In order for personality politics this powerful, the parties parties themselves, A, must be very weak. So that's why the parties have no control. There's no mechanism to control beyond the personality that binds them together. Yeah, I mean, here here's another theory. It's that because of the regionalization of Italian politics, and the thresholds that exist. Quite often, parties in Italy tend to form quite large electoral alliances and agreements, because I think I read that you can only stand as a party if you have candidates in two-thirds of seats or something like that. So they have to create big electoral alliances, which naturally have to have a figurehead, because that person would eventually become prime minister in an ideal government. So there's almost a presidentialization of politics because... It has to be because somebody has to control these quite broad electoral alliances, which is actually made up of different political parties from all over the country who believe very different things. And crucially as well, voters do not punish them for for failing to see out their term. Mm-hmm. They just they go to the next flavor of the month, really. So I don't think the fact that, you know, there's a huge voter backlash in many of these cases is why they kind of got tacit approval to do whatever they want during the term, really. Yeah. That doesn't help the, the situation in Italian politics at all. So if you had to give a straight answer to the question, why is Italy so unstable and what could be done to change that? Wh- where would you go? I know it's a I would question. say changing it is almost impossible in the short term. I think 
once again, unfortunately, you have to look at the electoral system. Mm-hmm. And we know that in Italy, negotiating or changing the electoral system is itself going to be a headache in itself that will prove very difficult to, to mesh together. But you have to look at it. I also think as well that if your system is designed for decentralization of power, this is what you can probably expect. You know, you might have to accept constant changing of prime ministers as one of the consequences, because once you have centralization of power, you can therefore have a longer term prime minister who can survive beyond the initial five years. So you have to look at a more systematic governance of what they really want. Mm-hmm. And if they want a more stable government, they're going to have to change the constitution. You're going to have to change the whole system, in my opinion, for Italy to get much more stable politics. But I just, that, I just don't see that as being a not is that's completely non-starter in Italy to me. I mean, Matteo Renzi tried to do that, and that's why he's no longer prime minister. Exactly. And I think as well is that Italian politics is also transactional, as I said earlier as well, and very regionalized as well. And you can't change that overnight. That takes long-term change mm-hmm. of how you do politics in a country. And, and that is why that even though we try our best to analyze situation like with Conte, you know, what we think might happen doesn't really happen because there's so many other factors at play under the surface that we from afar, if we apply the usual logic we usually apply to other countries, doesn't work in Italy's sense. And that's the case you probably find for a lot of other countries with strong personality-based politics and weak party systems, is that the coalitions very much change every couple of years with the rise and fall of different people in the spotlight, really. Because in order for a person to rise, you, you kind of had to hog the spotlight for a while. Mm-hmm. Look, the fact is Berlusconi is still there, but he doesn't really have a lot of influence left. He's 80-something. Yeah, and Matteo Renzi fully... is trying to still be around as well. Exactly. I think the Democrat Party is probably the party that's closest to have a party that's ideologically based, really. But they haven't been really that successful in Italian politics, certainly compared to some of the others on the right, I would say. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that in recent years, the conflict has emerged between two different strands of populism, whereas usually you would have the populist party, say the League on the far right, and you would have a party like the Democratic Party end up being like, well, we represent normal politics and you can vote for us if you want normal politics, but they've been drowned out by populist assaults on their position from both sides. Definitely. And how the Democratic Party responds will be very interesting, though. I think we're head- Italy is one of those countries where we're heading that the usual party that comes who is the, you know, who wins the most number of votes is not going to be in the 40 percent to win the most number of votes. It's probably about the 20 to 30 percent, as we currently see at the moment, just due to natural fragmentation. I still think, though, that in that case, the Democratic Party could still survive to a certain extent. Because in many countries, coming first in a PR election grants you so much power and legitimacy to form a government that you usually do form the government anyway. And if you're still polling near the top, it's still enough recipe of success to continue the way in which it's done previously, really. Yeah, and I think in this fragmented environment, a party like the Democratic Party features in quite a lot of coalition options of all kinds of parties so even if you're not finishing in first necessarily say there's a big surge of a certain party you're pretty much always going to be on the table as a potential coalition partner so you might have a lot of leverage even if you don't finish first exactly 
so we talked a lot about the parties in the, the five star movement. Do you think the five star movement will die out? Are we seeing the end of the five star movement? I think it'll very much depend on how they perform whenever this next election occurs. Um, because if they can maintain some sort of reasonable level of support, you might see them try and surge in opposition, because I think it's actually a party that works much better in opposition than in government, as they've proven um, since the last cycle of elections. However, if they continue to decline and drain support in the run-up to that election and end up finishing way down in the pack, that might be the end of them. Because if they're not going to be a feature in an opposition, I don't think they're going to be a feature in Italian politics. And that is why I think a lot of far-right politicians know the fact they're better in opposition rather than in government. Yeah. So, for example, in Denmark, the Danish People Party, even though they came first in the 2015 election, they chose not to go into government as well. And the fin, the you know, the far right party in Finland and Sweden, the Swedish Democrats and the True Finns party both chose not to go into government. I think because they know they work better at retaining support from outside and therefore being kingmaker in terms of legislation then from inside holding the political mm-hmm. levers of power, really. And so, yes, I think you're right in terms of if Five Star can survive as a viable opposition force, potentially. But if they fall too far down, no. That's how I view it as well. Yeah, I personally can't see the Italian government trusting them to run a government again, personally. <laughs> At least not in the short term. So They tried, though, with Giuseppe Conte, in a sense that he was independent as such, but Five Star aligned. But I still don't think that helped because they were still seen as leading the government in the first place, despite the fact that a nominal independent figure is his head. Yeah, I think on behalf of the Italian people, we'll be wishing Mario Draghi all the success. But I think more than likely we'll be back discussing an Italian election within the next year or so. Don't you? I think I'm slightly more optimistic than you. I don't think it's within the next year. He could be given two years. Mm -hmm. By which stage it would be time for an election anyway. But it will very much depend, I think, the key to this is how the centre-right performs over the next few years. Because if the centre-right pulls out, we'll be faced with the same situation that Giuseppe Conte has, where we know there's not a majority on the floor in the Senate, really. So if the centre-right sense that the support is slipping, they might want to vote before it crum- the support crumbles, really. And, they- and that is why the Brothers of Italy is key to this. Because they're in opposition right now. And the only re- the only party which all of its members voted in opposition. And therefore, if they start to increase in the polls at the expense of the League and Forza Italia, they might get cold feet and therefore pull their parties out of government, particularly the League party as well. Because I think they'll be much more susceptible to polls than Silvio Berlusconi did because they have a lot more to lose than Forza Italia itself. Well, we'll definitely be keeping a close eye on Italy, I'm sure. Definitely. And on that note, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Join us again next week when, as always, we'll bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at Ballot underscore Talk and leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chern Han and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.